0: My name is Ike Nahum. Currently, the main political activity I do is around Cuba solidarity for many decades now. But I'm a longtime socialist activist, political organizer. I'm with the New York, New Jersey, Cuba Sea Coalition. This is not going to be a history lesson, although I think there's going to be a lot of lessons from history that we can learn for our everyday struggles that we may be involved in and to learn from. Fidel was a revolutionist and a revolutionist of action, a figure in history where theory and practice merged in an amazing way, as we'll get into. This is also not going to be a class of what they call hagiography, if people know that word, a personality cult or anything like that. Shortly after the revolution in Cuba, One of the laws that they passed was a law to ban statues of any living person. And then after Fidel died, many of you may famously remember that he insisted, and it was passed into law in Cuba after he died, that there be no statues or public things. He was a strong opponent of what was called the cult of personality that became manifested in the Stalin era in the Soviet Union. There's this great story of when Fidel was visiting a small town in the Cuban countryside. And, you know, very small population. They had just built some roads to connect some of the small towns and stuff. And so they had a ceremony in the village. The villagers that came together were very excited about Fidel coming to visit. So they put up a statue. So Fidel gets there and he says, well... I really appreciate you, but you guys are breaking the law. You don't know that we have this law that you can't put a statue up for any living person. And he said, and there's a reason for that. He says, what would happen if I sold out the struggle? You know, then you'd be stuck with this statue. (laughs) So the thing is that Fidel never sold out, as we will see. So these classes are not just about the past and the history is rich and full of lessons that it is but really the present and the future. Because to understand the tremendous impact that this man had growing up in a small island in the Caribbean, at the time of the revolution, less than seven million people, the impact that he had on world politics and on world history, as we'll go over from the Cuban revolution to the liberation struggle in Southern Africa, and much more. Not only was Fidel a product of his times, as we all are, but to an amazing degree, an extraordinary degree, Fidel also shaped history. What I want to try to do tonight and in the next two classes is to go over what I think is the main source of Fidel's many legacies. I mean, when you look at the accomplishments of Fidel in his 90 years on this earth, You can point out many things. I mean, as a humanitarian, there's very few leaders that have set in motion the wheels that opened up to millions of working people, the poorest, most destitute layers of the working class and peasantry, access to medical care, to education, the legacy of the incredible, which the U.S. government right now is slandering in an obscene way, legacy of medical internationalism, the missions of Cuba... Around the world, emergency relief, that legacy. The legacy against racism. The Cuban Revolution, before the passage of civil rights legislation in the United States, carried out an incredible sweeping program against racism and segregation, the legacy of U.S. domination in Cuba, sort of the Cuban Jim Crow. Same with women's rights. Cuba was the first country in the entire Western Hemisphere that ratified and legalized the woman's right to control her own body. And the establishment of the Federation of Cuban Women and things like this. On the level of strategy and tactics, politically, the art of revolutionary politics, if you look at that legacy, as a military leader and a commander, Fidel was at the center of two of the great and important military battles of the 20th century, not only the Cuban Revolutionary War of 1956 to 1958, but also the war in Southern Africa from 1976 to 1990 that ended with the unraveling and the defeat of apartheid South Africa, the securing of the sovereignty of Angola, and the winning of the independence of Namibia. As a so-called statesman, diplomat, breaking through Cuba's diplomatic isolation imposed by the United States, as an orator, literary skills, so on and so forth. So any one of these things in and of themselves would be an incredible legacy for any person. So all of these singular achievements point to an exceptional life. But when you look at it all together, I think we have to ask the question that to really understand these accomplishments, even in their singularity, and to understand that they flow from Fidel's embrace of socialism and Marxism as a coherent world outlook and a guide to action as he understood it and as he greatly developed it. I think Fidel is the embodiment of the famous slogan, of Lenin that without revolutionary theory there can be no revolutionary practice. So let's get into the things that helped forge Fidel and the historical background that produced him and that he enhanced. The first major source is the tradition of Latin American anti-imperialism. Here we have Simon Bolivar and Jose Marti. Bolivar the liberator who led many revolutionary wars that resulted in the independence of much of Latin America, that gave a tremendous impetus to the fight against slavery, which Bolivar was a strong abolitionist. José Martí, who spent many years living in New York, who fought for Cuban independence, who heroically died in defense of Cuban independence, and became the general inspiration of a whole generation of Cuban revolutionaries, including Fidel but also encompassing the Haitian Revolution, led by Toussaint Louverture, the first independent black republic in the world and that was forged in the battle and the defeat of the French slave owners, one of the great events of its time. The Mexican Revolution, Zapata to Cardenas, Lazaro Cardenas, a great anti-imperialist, the president of Mexico in the 1930s, who led a massive battle to nationalize Mexico's major natural resource, which was oil. And that tradition, that anti-imperialist tradition. Later, when Fidel met Che in Mexico in the early 50s, after they escaped, after they won amnesty for themselves, after the failure of the Moncada barracks attack, and they landed in Mexico, and Fidel met Che and something that Cardenas, who was still alive played a major role in springing them from jail (laughs) so that they could actually board the Granma and organize the guerrilla war and the armed struggle. And the other side of that tradition is the resistance to the rise of the U.S. empire. This was mostly epitomized by the Spanish-American War of 1898, which was the beginning of the U.S. rise as a world power and as the empire initially focused on taking Spain's colonies after defeating Spain, in which Cuba was a central part of that. Basically, the U.S. went in. When the Cubans were on the verge of winning their independence, the U.S. went in, claiming to support independence, it imposed the Platt Amendment in 1901 that wasn't abrogated until 1934, that basically it was a model, really, of the sort of the colonial model as opposed to direct colonial rule as was under the French, and the British, and so on. Now, the other side, for example, the coup in Guatemala, 1954, a major event where the U.S. overthrew the democratic elected government of Jacobo Arbenz for the audacity of of really proposing very mild agrarian reforms and others, but which marginally touched the holdings of the United Fruit Company. Their lawyer happened to be John Foster Dulles, who happened to be Eisenhower's Secretary of State. This is also where Che barely got out alive after the coup. He was put on the death squads, ended up in Mexico, selling pencils on the street, where he ran into Raul Castro, Fidel Castro, and a colony of revolutionists from Cuba that were already organizing to overthrow the Batista dictatorship, which we'll get into. The next... This is looking at this period and what formed Fidel, the thinking of, this is the consequences of the World War II era. This is a scene from the Battle of Stalingrad. This was really the turning point of World War II and the defeat of Hitler and German imperialism. And the world that we live in today, which is changing and the eroding of the full dominance of US imperialism in the world, This world that came out of World War II and the consequences of World War II is really the world order that's now eroding and declining today. So really to understand those shifts, you have to go back to this. Now, just let me sidetrack for a, a second just to go over this period leading up to World War II. Because I think what happened was that Germany, which became the most advanced capitalist power technically in the late 1800s. And once they overcame the obstacle to German capitalist development of the fracturing of the countries into sort of fiefdoms, when Bismarck was able to unify Germany under a United State under capitalism, and then they found out after they had done all this and had surpassed the British and the French in modes of production and technique and so on and so forth, they found out that the surplus capital that they now had, which traditionally had been used by the French, the British, the Dutch, to grab colonies in the world, there were no real colonies left. They got Namibia, but the world was already divided up. So World War I was really a war that the French and the British, to preserving their empires, and the Germans who wanted some uh, empires and allied with these decrepit semi-feudal empires, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and so on. And then they were defeated, and then the massive, onerous Versailles Treaty, and so on. Then the Depression, the rise of Hitler, the Russian Revolution, which is really what ended World War I, and all of that. So that was what laid the basis for the uh, World War II era. So, let's go into the, what are these consequences. First of all, the decline of the British and French empires. The British won World War II, but it was really like, I mean, they were part of the winning alliance. But they basically lost their empire, much of it right away. But by the 1950s, even what they could be able to cling into. And the French, who had been defeated by the Nazis, the French bourgeois state, but maintained their colonial holdings in Indochina, in Algeria, and in Indochina, They were defeated at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954. But this period led to the decline of the British and French empires and the rise of the U.S. global power, which in different forms, not necessarily direct colonial rule, displaced British and French empires. And this was a very important shift in the global relationship of forces in the world. The same thing in Asia. The Japanese took over the British colonies in places like Singapore and others and the, and the French colonies in Indochina and in Korea where the Japanese were, was already a colony. So this laid the basis for this clash between Japan displacing the French and this created space for revolutionary movements, particularly in Indochina and in Vietnam led by Ho Chi Minh. The other side of this, the other major consequence, is the uh, rise of the Soviet Union. This is a very crucial outcome of World War II. The Soviet Union had been greatly weakened in the interwar period. The massive purge trials, which include unbelievable numbers of officers of the Red Army and purges, something like 90% of the officer corps was basically executed, and the weakening of the Soviet Union, which, again... Fidel was totally immersed in this and, and then later in his life spoke of this at length and gave his views on this. But in any case, the Soviet Union was very weakened and Hitler thought that he could invade and within a matter of six to eight weeks could overthrow what he considered the weakened regime. It is a classic case of the law of unintended consequences because basically that was thrown back. But the Nazi armies got... To the gates of Moscow, and the losses were unbelievable. On the Eastern Front, I'll give you one statistic. The Soviet Union lost an estimated at least 9 million soldiers out of probably 25 or so million total losses in the population. But 9 million soldiers compared to in the United States and Britain, uh, UK, the Great Alliance, 250,000 dead. For each for the U.K., 250,000 for the uh, U.S., 9 million soldiers for the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union gained great prestige for the heroic fight against the German invaders, which really turned the whole tide, even though a lot of us grow up here with D-Day was the decisive battle and all of these things. But the resistance to the Nazis in countries like Italy, France, were led mostly by the Communist parties, Yugoslavia. The Communist Party of Yugoslavia led and seized power in that. So this led to a rise of Soviet prestige. In Italy, the Italian Communist Party, which was oriented toward Moscow, used to get maybe 38% of the vote in elections. They would have won the first election, except the U.S. sent Lucky Luciano, and a lot of mafia gangs, to destroy their electoral processes, which they did. So, the other factor, the consequences of World War II, which we've alluded to, is the post-war anti-colonial upsurge which is again another one of the unintended consequences within a few years after the end of world war II, the british empire had lost india the great chinese revolution had taken place in nineteen forty nine korea won its independence and then as the cold war started to break out the division of the country indochina the vietnamese took over their own country, won independence in 1945. The French came back, years of bloody struggle, and finally the French were booted out in 1954 at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. All of these things have an impact on the young Fidel and a generation of revolutionary-minded youth in Cuba. And we can see the impact on this era on Cuban politics. This is the dictator Machado. Who was overthrown in 1933? He ran a very repressive regime, backed by the United States. But there was a popular uprising in 33, which overthrew Machado. For about six months to a year, a revolutionary government emerged. Into the first coup led by Batista, that snuffed it out in 34, 35. Although the legacy of that Machado era and the revolutionary ferment that it produced had a huge impact on Fidel and and, uh, Cuban revolutionaries. There's a wonderful Cuban film, it's actually a film with a feminist theme from the 60s called Lucia. It's a wonderful film in three parts. The second part of women in different eras of Cuban history. The second segment of the movie takes place during the uprising against the Machado dictatorship. So two of the outstanding revolutionaries that were produced in Cuba in this period are Julio Antonio Mea and Antonio Gutierrez. Mea was an amazing young man. He was murdered at the age, I think, of 26. He was a founder of the Cuban Communist Party when he was 21 years old. He was a follower of José Martí and a great theoretician had read Marx and Engels and Lenin, had been inspired like a lot of the generation, including, I, I would compare him in many ways to, a couple of people whose portraits are up here in the People's Forum, Bhagat Singh, the great Indian revolutionary, and also Ho Chi Minh, in terms of people that were motivated by anti-imperialism and nationalism, national liberation, but in the course of that, became familiar with Marxism, and that helped fuse their thinking. And in the case of Meya and also Guterres, They were also influenced by Marxism and embraced that as a way to push forward the national struggle. So, Maya was murdered by an agent of the Machado government in Mexico in 1929. But he was a great inspiration. Fidel speaks of him and Guterres in this book, In My Life and uh, People Together. It's a very rich history. Now, the government that came out of the overthrow of Machado. Guterres was the Secretary of State of that government, and was a, through that powerful position, he too had been influenced by Marxism, had radicalized, was follower of Marti. He promulgated some of the most amazing pro-labor reforms, unemployment, compensation, nationalized the telephone companies, unheard of things. And he also was murdered by Batista's thugs, I believe it was in 1934. Then Batista ruled uneasily with a few rigged elections up until 1940, when popular pressure on the Batista regime led to his government trying to set up what a popular front government in 1944, in which the members of the Communist Party of Cuba actually joined that government. And this had an impact in, like, creating a vacuum in Cuban politics, which is very important for what we'll start on the the next class. So let me also say one other thing, just on Meya. He was murdered while he was walking in the streets in Mexico with his companion, the great Italian communist artist and photographer whose name was Tina Modetti, a brilliant photographer who people should look up her great works. So this was the, as I said, Gutiérrez under the Raúl San Martín short-lived government, but they implemented many of these reforms: minimum wage, eight-hour day, and so on. So these are the events that lead to the background to the Moncada attack. This is a wonderful picture that my friend Cesar found from the University of Havana. Fidel was a student in that period, 1947-48, a leader. The campus was roiled by all of the political activity which Fidel was at the center of. He even joined with a group of revolutionary-minded young people that went on an expedition in Colombia in 1948, which again he describes in this book in more detail, where they went to battle for the progressive and democratic changes in Colombia at that period. So these are all the events, because what happens is that a series of corrupt, weakened governments, alternates in the late 1940s, Batista and the ruling class of Cuba organized an election that is a very rigged election, but nevertheless, it's very clear that Batista, who was running to be the legally elected president, was going to lose that election, and he seized power in 1952. So shortly after the coup... The coup took place in 1952 and Fidel and a series of patriotic youth began to organize for a military assault in the name of defending the 1940 constitution and defending the republic and they began to organize. And this is a pictures of some of the uh, fighters. This is Abel Santa Maria, who was really the closest comrade of Fidel in this period and he was later murdered in a particularly bestial, torturous way by the Batiste dictatorship after the failure of the assault. But what I want to emphasize tonight is that the attack after it failed is a classic example of political victory coming out of a military defeat or what could be presented as a clear military defeat because the assault failed most of the combatants were captured alive and tortured to death in a way that became very public very fast. Abel Santa Maria, for example, was in front of his sister, who later became a leading revolutionary fighter with Fidel Ay de Santa Maria, founder of the Casa de las Americas, a great figure in the Cuban Revolution. But her brother Abel was tortured to death in front of her by gouging his eyes. And this became known very out and murdering him. This became known, and so the revulsion of the Cuban population to these youth that were seen as patriots that were fighting to defend democratic freedoms and so on was universal. So this became a factor in sort of staying the hand of the Batista executioners. This is the Moncada barracks, and you can see the bullet holes. This is not a very old picture, so they preserved the bullet holes. If you ever make it to Santiago, it's definitely worth visiting. So Fidel was saved by a black sergeant who promised that he would preserve his life. So Fidel and some of the other ones were not murdered, and they went to prison. And while there was still enough political space in Cuba, not much, but there was a trial. It was a rigged trial of the revolutionaries, and Fidel took the dock. Fidel was a trained lawyer who became a revolutionary, had a practice in Havana, And he kept saying, it's practice, he was always giving his services to free to the poor of Havana, so he never was able to make a going (laughs) concern, but he was a lawyer. And so he spoke in court, and his speech was smuggled out, called History Will Absolve Me. And this speech became the organizing document of the July 26th movement, which became the main organizing tool that the movement used to build support. And it was mass-produced in an underground copies, pamphlets, distributed all over the island while Fidel, Raul Castro, and others were in prison. So because public opinion across classes, but especially in the working class and among the poorest layers of the working class, the support had shifted in support of these young revolutionaries. And using this book and this pamphlet as a main organizing tool, they organized a massive amnesty campaign. And really, after two years in prison, the Batista government felt that they needed to, uh, so they granted amnesty, this mass campaign that had developed. Part of that was that it was impossible while they were in prison to kill them because of the spotlight of public opinion. So many of Batista's goons and the death squads that were unleashed that were clearly targeting Fidel and the others. So very quickly they moved. This is the getting out of prison after the successful amnesty campaign. This is Raul, Juan Almeida, Fidel, and other uh, combatants. So very quickly they went to Mexico. And we discussed a little last week that in Mexico at that time the traditions of the Mexican Revolution, the traditions of political asylum. Mexico was full of colonies of refugees from many struggles against dictatorships and different regimes, including opponents of Batista. There were colonies of Cubans and so on. This is where Fidel met Che. This is a young Che. They're in a Mexican prison together. They were sprung from that prison because right-wing pro-Batista elements working with Batista had gotten them arrested and the former president of Mexico, Lázaro Cárdenas, who was a Mexican president in the 1930s and led the campaign to nationalize Mexican oil, granted asylum to Trotsky, was known as a very progressive figure, and he intervened, he was very prestigious in Mexico to get them free. This is the disembarking in the wrong location, unfortunately, of the Granma, The Expeditionary Force, and of the 82 revolutionaries that had been recruited, I think about 12 or 16 actually survived. And then they reconnoitered in the countryside. This is Fidel and some of the revolutionaries. While they were in Mexico, very intensive training, veteran of the Spanish Civil War, which, as I mentioned last time, uh, Fidel was totally immersed in the history of that in fact, Fidel said his main manual that he used to learn guerrilla warfare before he read Giap and Mao and some of the other was actually Ernest Hemingway's novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls, which is actually an account of a revolutionary guerrilla during the Spanish Civil War. It was unfortunately made into a horrible movie by some right-winger in Hollywood, so if you see the movie and you have read the wonderful novel by Hemingway, you can do yourself a favor and. Skip the movie. Now, were these revolutionaries? Were they all middle class intellectuals? What was the connection? How did they relate to the working class of Cuba? And talked about how the revolutionary underground that was established, that was a conduit, was led by Celia. This is Heidi Santa Maria. Told about her brother Abel that was murdered by Batista's goons. This is Celia Sanchez, and they led contingents of women that were like conduits of working class youth and union combatants and others that were part of the July 26th movement that were recruited to go into the countryside and to join the guerrilla force that had started to establish bases and rebel armies as they grew, recruited peasants. So this was a constant pipeline between the revolutionary underground and sometimes leaders of the underground in the cities where there was a vast urban network their life became too precarious in some of the big cities, so they would get into this pipeline and get into the country. And this is Ida and Celia leading groups of recruits into the base area. This is a very good book here, Monthly Review Press. It's an amazing biography of Celia Sanchez, one day in December, this revolutionary hero and somebody whose life was fascinating. Now, she was a middle-class intellectual, maybe not intellectual, but came from middle-class origins. But the integration into the working-class struggle and her immersion in that is something that's in that book is very well detailed. Okay, so now we get to the revolution, the Battle of Santa Clara at the end of 1958. The Batista regime realizes its days are numbered. The cities are in insurrection, especially Havana. Batista flees to the Dominican Republic. And the revolutionaries find themselves in power. There's a long march into Havana and hundreds of thousands of people line the streets. So now this is an interesting situation. I'm going to go step back a second and talk a little bit about some of the theoretical questions that gets involved here. Because we've seen, for example, in the last 20, 25 years in Latin America, a whole number of anti-imperialist and progressive governments come to power through an electoral process. And these governments come into conflict with the vestiges of the state, oftentimes the neo-colonial state, whatever that's left over. And this becomes the basis for a lot of conflict. In Cuba you had a different dynamic and it's something to understand and grasp when we look at the dynamics of leading a socialist revolution, which is what happened in Cuba. When the revolutionaries took power, the Batista police, which was basically just a force of murders, they murdered like 20,000 people in the course of the revolution, and were particularly strutting their power and stuff. But that just dissolved. They were just getting on the first boats that they could get to Miami. The whole police force basically, the army, the army was defeated and although many individual officers, some even came over to the revolution, but the army as an institution, as the apparatus, it basically was smashed and dissolved. The whole criminal justice system, the court system, which was rigged and corrupt, basically dissolved. So what happened is the revolutionaries come to power, and the major institutions of the state, of the old neo-colonial capital state in Cuba, are basically gone. And the revolutionaries start to build a different personnel of for a different class power, and there becomes this emerging new state power in Cuba. And this is what happened. Revolutionary police, tribunals were organized to bring to justice. People, Che in one of the One of the slanders against Che is that he was the executioner the right wing, sends out all the stuff that Che organized, all the murders of the dissidents right after the revolution. What basically happened was that this was, like I said, the police and army, very brutal, 20,000 people killed, torture in every police station, all of that. People, after the triumph of the revolution with the vacuum of power that, that took place, they basically began to lynch these cops on the street, and basically, public executions. And the revolutionary government felt it was important to have a legal process. And so they organized popular tribunals. They presented evidence. John Lee Anderson's book on Che, which is not generally a very good book, but he does have a very good section in there where he details. And every one of these guys got a fair trial. People were anxious to give evidence about the crimes and the murders and so on, so about 200 of them were executed after legal proceedings and so on. So this was the embryo of building criminal justice institutions from the ground up. So they didn't inherit all the institutions of the old state, but from the beginning they were building a new state apparatus. So this is a framework in Marxist theory that has come to be known as the workers' and farmers' government, where you have a government that comes to power that's in conflict with the vestiges of the old state power, which is the full-blown capitalist state, even a neo-colonial state. And this has happened in history. The, the Communist International, while Lenin was still alive, began to explore this thesis of the stages by which a socialist revolution takes place. And in history, when we see especially the events that came out of World War II, that this was in Algeria, you had the similar type of government, and in China, in the transition from when they first took power, and then when the capitalist property forms were overturned, this transition of what they call a workers' and a farmers' government. Ben, Cuba is really a classic illustration of that dynamic. So. While this is happening, so the government is taking power, the guerrillas and the revolutionaries are taking power and these institutions dissolve. So this is what they face. It's not the same as, say, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela or Evo Morales in Bolivia or some of the other progressive anti-imperialist government that came to power through elections with the same army the police, and and some of these forming the basis for some of the conflict. So that was a different dynamic. So the government begins this workers and farmers government that's in power and is building its own bodies of Engels and Lenin. They talk about what is the state, and they, using the, I guess, sexist nomenclature of the time, they say it comes down to bodies of armed men. That's what the state comes down to. You could say bodies of armed men and women now since more women have been allowed to serve in the u.s army for example but basically that is the bottom line repressive apparatus so they were in power and building their own institutions. so the very first thing the thing that ties everything together the social reforms that the revolutionaries are trying to implement is land reform and others but the land reform really ties together and is at the center of all the social reforms that take place. The smashing of segregation and de facto the Jim Crow Cuba, the women's liberation and literacy campaign, all of these tremendous programs. So what ties it all together is the land reform. They set up the Institute of Land Reform, INRA. Fidel was at the head of it che and fidel collaborated and went back and forth on all the questions and che was headed up the department of industrialization within the inro within the institute of land reform because they tied land reform setting up cooperatives collectives but also preserving private farming for every farmer that wanted to use their own land and have their own land limits on ownership hundred thousand acres which is a lot and so on but they connected roads build tourist resorts build armies and to organize the working of the land and this was seen as being at the center of all the reforms this was the first thing that was done this was to mobilize people now in cuba so much of the land was owned by not only the cuban landlord class but most of it was owned by the us major holdings so they began to Distribute to supervise, set up farm cooperatives, nearly 500,000 acres of confiscated land was owned by U.S. Corporations, so Che and the Department of Industrialization finance highway construction housing for peasants and so on. So this was very early years of the At the very outset, not explicitly socialist per se But it really is a blow Against the holdings of the landlord capitalist class, which in Cuba, like in many countries, is semi feudal holdings in land combined with especially capital from the United States, modernization. Meanwhile, the peasants work three months of the year, left to starve the rest of the year, and do backbreaking labor. So that whole system was smashed, and that began to establish new social relations. Now, while this is going on, and within this, Another big campaign is the struggle against racism. Cuba was like a replica or like a caricature of the uh, Jim Crow system in the United States. Fidel, and I'm gonna read a little excerpt from this speech that Fidel gives in March 1959. This is like three months after the guerrillas take power. So this is very early on. This is reprinted, in fact, the syllabus for this class, which is online somewhere. I mentioned last week there's an archive at the University of Texas which has actually every speech almost that Fidel ever did. You can look this up, March 29th, 1950, and I'm just going to read a little, little example of it to give you an idea of, of the consciousness. This is like five years before the passage of the Civil Rights Act in the United States and the Voting Rights Act. This is an example which is why in the early years of the Cuban Revolution to this day there were layers of black freedom fighters, civil rights movement, revolutionaries in that period, including Malcolm X, that were attracted to the Cuban revolution, that knew that what the Cuban revolution has done. So this is what Fidel says, I'm gonna read a little bit of this. He says, I believe it is my duty to tell the people about the things on my mind and how they must collaborate with their revolutionary government and how it is helping them. But not everybody's mentality has developed enough in the revolutionary way. A revolutionary consciousness is lagging behind the people's feelings. The people's feelings are all revolutionary, but their mentality is still not wholly so. The people's mentality is conditioned by many inherited prejudices, many vestiges of the past and many old customs. If the people want to overcome this evil, they must begin by recognizing it. Battles must be won by us, the battle against unemployment, the battle to raise the standards of the lowest paid workers, the battle to bring down the cost of living, and one of the most just battles that must be fought, a battle that must be emphasized more and more, which I might call the fourth battle, the battle to end racial discrimination at work centers. I repeat, the battle to end racial discrimination at work centers. Of all forms of racial discrimination, the worst is the one that limits the colored, Cubans' access to jobs. It is true that there is in our country, in some sectors, the shameful procedure of barring Negroes from jobs. Everybody knows I am not a demagogue. Everybody knows I hate demagogy. The first form of racial discrimination we must combat is racial discrimination at work centers. This limits access to places where a living can be learned. It limits the Negro's chance of satisfying his needs. And so we commit the crime of denying the chance to work to the poorest group particularly. While the colonial society made the Negro work as a slave, made the Negro work more than anybody else, and without pay, we commit the crime in our society, which some have wanted to call a democratic society, of doing just the opposite and trying to prevent him from Working uh, to earn a living and he goes on and it's a brilliant speech and it set the tone early on that the fight against racism The fight against segregation was going to be at the center of the cuban revolution. The same is true for women's liberation I already mentioned that in the hills there was a women's Battalion a combat battalion organized of women in addition to the soldiers and the combatants and the conduits and the people that recruited in the city and recruited people into the countryside. But after the revolution triumphed, the Federation of Cuban Women was established. Now, just think for a minute what Cuba was like in this period before the revolution. In Havana, one of the main industries of so-called tourism was the commercial sex trade. It's estimated that maybe one out of three Women in Cuba were employed in that industry, were prostitutes or some degree of the chain of prostitution and commercial sex. It was known as the brothel of the United States and so on and so forth. So the revolution smashed all of that and many, many thousands and thousands of women were retrained, given jobs, and many of the women, young women that were the bulk of the cadre. Even to this day in Cuba has some of the highest indices of women in professional occupations, teachers, doctors, nurses, and so on of any country really in the world. But the literacy campaign was particularly women in the leadership. This was an amazing effort that smashed basically total illiteracy within a matter of a few years, getting all Cubans up to a third grade, then sixth grade, then ninth grade level And today where Cuba, I think the United Nations, bestowed us as one of the first countries in, in the Americas, if not the world, to be illiteracy-free territory. And this was a massive campaign, it was going on while the revolution, as we'll get into in a little bit, was coming under tremendous attack militarily by the United States government during the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis and all this. These are. Teachers that are going out into the countryside teaching people how to read and write, getting their certificate, and so on. Several were murdered by uh, mercenary forces at the time of the Bay of Pigs. Okay, so at this time, these reforms are taking place on all these, and they're having a huge impact on social relations inside Cuba because social relations are changing, and social relations are what are at the key of any genuine revolution. The way you can tell if a revolution is a real revolution or or just a fake revolution, revolution of rhetoric and so on, is when they begin to change the social relations in society between workers and bosses, between peasants and landlords, between men and women, between blacks and white supremacists or whatever you want to call it. So in this period, Cuba goes from a workers and farmers government Two again, in this terminology that we're using that comes out of the Marxist movement, becomes more of a worker state. And it does, a a worker state or a socialist, where the fundamental character of the state and of social relations is moving in a socialist direction. And they're doing this under the whip. They're very conscious on the one hand, but there's also a degree of, of just events that are forcing this process along, because this is the period 1959 1961, when the Bay of Pigs, when the United States government, first under Eisenhower and then Kennedy, decides that this is not just some typical radical sounding and even a few radical acting Latin American government, that this is a government led by conscious people that know what they want and that are serious about elevating the position and the political power of the working class and the poor peasants. So we move into the realm of the socialist revolution. All of these things involve narrowing what Marx calls the prerogatives of capital. So this is not explicitly socialist measures, but one of the first ones was the rent law. In Cuba, like in New York, the rent is too damn high. And in Cuba, one of the first laws that they passed was to, I think, reduce Rents by like 80%, was it? Something like that. It couldn't be any more than 10% of your salary. That's not bad. We could use that in New York, I'm sure. And you can imagine that the apartment owners, many of whom were US, but not all, they weren't too happy about that. The other thing here is the expropriation and destruction of the US mafia. This was very popular in the period before Fidel became demonized after some of these cops and others were executed after legal proceedings, and they started to demonize Fidel in the US press. Fidel was very, very popular. You can find video on YouTube of Fidel doing a tour in New York City in 1959, where he goes to Penn Station, he's mobbed by people. Mayor Wagner, who was the mayor at the time, comes out and greets him and gives him the key to the subway or whatever, you know. And, <laughs> but this is not only a moral thing about the sordid, sleazy system that these Mafia families had imposed on Cuba and all that. This was a major economic question too. By kicking out and expropriating the property of these people, that's a big chunk of capital in Cuba. Remember, Cuba was completely dependent on U.S. capital. Many of its factories were dependent on U.S. parts, were owned by U.S. companies. So this revolution is taking place, and at the same time, its industry and its factories and its ability to produce goods, they're being squeezed by the United States. The United States refuses to refine its oil, all in response to these legal measures taken by the revolution. So they had to train whole layers of Cuban working people to basically take over the factories, to learn how to run them, and as they began to get trade, especially from the Soviet Union and stuff, to be trained in the news. So this was a whole process of where the capitalists that owned these factories, which, you know, the process of nationalization that took place, which we will go into, was a legal proceeding. And in any industry or company that was scheduled to be nationalized or proposed to be nationalized was compensated. They had, it was all through a legal process under international law and so forth. But the U.S. capitalists that owned many things in Cuba, in the land and in the cities, were not interested in negotiating any compensation or so on. They were expecting fully that the United States would be bringing back them and their property rights through overthrowing the Cuban government. So that was what they expected. So after the defeat of the mercenaries at the Bay of Pigs, Fidel announced that there was nationalization of banks and these industries, and he said, we will nationalize them down to the nails in their boots. So this is a very key part by 1961, 1962, with the nationalization of industry, with the land reform, with these broader social measures, and then most decisively in Cuba is the question of the state monopoly of foreign trade. This is the measure that really supersedes the market forces in Cuba at that time. And then planning comes in, you begin to overturn, although it's still functioning within the world market and world capitalist economy, but at the same time within Cuba, trade is mediated through this new worker state. So this puts them in a position, because it existed at the time, where they could also integrate their economic system into the existing systems that existed in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe to take the place of and get spare parts and stuff for their machinery. This is the period then where defending the revolution is tied into the social measures being taken. Because at each stage of the process, the Cuban revolutionaries and the new Cuban state and government is coming under unrelenting pressure from the United States. This is Fidel leaping off a tank as he's leading the tanks that rush to with the Bay of Pigs when they learned that this was where the mercenaries were gonna be landing. So this is the Bay of Pigs, these are the captured invaders organized by the CIA. Now it's very interesting, one little aspect of this that gives you an indication of the type of savvy political opponent that Washington was facing that they weren't used to. When these people were captured, I think there was about 2,000 of them that had survived. They captured them, never tortured them, nothing like that. In fact, they got information about every single one of these guys, and they had ID and stuff like that, and they put out a pamphlet that explained in detail the class composition of this army, and they broke it down. It was very interesting. There were like, I can't remember the exact figures, but, you know, like so many owners of industry, so many rich people, 35 professional playboys. I mean, I forget, they broke it and they wrote a a pamphlet of it, something that I should have jotted down the statistics. And they put that out. They explained this is an army of the overthrown. This is who they are. This is their class. There's no workers and peasants in this mercenary army. They kept them in, again, No torture, no nothing. They kept them, and they traded them eventually and made the United States trade medicines and stuff that Cuba had been barred from having because of the economic blockade and measures, medicines they traded for these guys who were unharmed. There's a history of this in Cuba. You know, there's so much projection that goes on in the propaganda against Cuba, and they try to use torture. They project what they do onto the Cubans. There's many cases that one of the most famous is this guy, Armando Valadez, that in the 1980s was a big cause. He was supposedly being tortured in Cuba, and he was this poet. You know, he had actually been a cop under Batista, but, you know, (laughs) leaving that aside. And he was this great poet. He wrote prose, and they published his book of poems, and he was being tortured and all this BS. He had been engaged in terrorist activities, mercenary activities. They caught him. They busted him. They put him in jail for... 10 years or whatever his sentence was. When he got out of prison, they made him walk from his cell to the uh, getting out of the gate so that everybody could see he was supposedly had been paralyzed. It was all complete BS. They filmed it, and, and, and that had never taken place. But there's a history of that kind of frame-up I call projection. Okay, so now the Cuban Missile Crisis, because this then becomes the high point of the U.S. attempts to overthrow Cuba that actually brought the world to the brink of nuclear war. After the failure of the Bay of Pigs, they launched this campaign, it was called Operation Mongoose, organized by Bobby Kennedy, the great liberal. And this was a campaign of just sort of unbridled terrorism, assassination attempts, death squad activities, sabotage, and this was met by the revolution defending itself in every way and the failure of that. So they came to the conclusion in upper sanctums of the United States that it was going to take a direct invasion of U.S. forces. They could not rely on proxies. You know, one of the great laws, I guess, of history is that people have to beware of when you start to believe your own bullshit. So they started to realize that the Cuban revolution had massive popular support. They didn't allow themselves anymore the illusion that they were going to be able to have some kind of an uprising of the Cuban people that would aid them. So they came to the conclusion that this was going to need a direct division and began planning for that. Operation Mongoose was meant to sort of soften up the uh, population for that. In this crisis, and I'm not going to go into great details, I wrote an essay on this that... I would, in all modesty, uh, recommend that people check out It's part of the reading for this is the political legacies of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where I go into a lot more detail. But essentially, in this situation, the Soviet leadership under Khrushchev convinced the Cubans, who were reluctant, very reluctant, and did not want to do it, that they would install nuclear missiles in Cuba, and that this would be a defense against what they knew was coming, which was a direct U.S. invasion. The Cubans were very reluctant to do that because of the impression that that would give. But at the same time, they were appealed to on the basis that this was necessary also for socialist camp solidarity because the United States, which is true, had missiles in Turkey and other places that were in proximate terrorism. And that this was something that the Soviets, although they didn't say this to Fidel, but this is what ended up happening, that would be a bargaining chip by which they could get the U.S. to withdraw some of the missiles that were closest to their territory, and so on. But Fidel insisted this is actually legal for us to do this, and the United States does this, so really you should be open about this because you shouldn't have any illusions that the United States is not going to notice that they have the most advanced capability for tracking things like this that they're not going to see it and he insisted that this be open and that they what they were doing was legal Of course the the soviets wouldn't do that of course it did get found out then the soviets withdrew the missiles without consulting with the cubans and by jettisoning the cuban demands such as stopping u.s. attacks and so on They got some weak pledge that was not legally binding, but nevertheless they felt the need to uphold it for many decades, not to directly invade Cuba, although the sabotage, terrorism, and things like that were going on. Some of the documents have been declassified on this, and there's a couple of books put out by, I think, the National security archive which is actually a progressive think tank in washington and some of these classified documents they're brilliant in their openness and honesty and they estimated that if you had an invasion of cuba at this time that within a week or two there would be eighteen thousand u.s. dead so you know the whole world was treated to the spectacle we're on nuclear alert and i remember i was a a very young child at that time everybody walk around from school Many of you here are probably too young to remember that, which is probably good. But anyway, everybody thought that, you know, a good chance the world could end. But at this time, this was the culmination of this whole period. So in this period, the Cubans felt that their best defense was to extend the Cuban revolution, especially in the Americas, which at that time was boiling over with oppressive military regimes, Grotesque inequality, rises in the class struggles, all kinds of urban uprisings and so on throughout the 50s and then and, and the 60s. Then the Cuban revolution hits the scene in the Americas and inspires a whole generation of revolutionary youth. The Cuban foreign policy at that time is focused on this. We're talking about the early 60s through the death of Che building a continental revolutionary movement. And Che, when he goes to Bolivia, has this approach of organizing guerrillas with a focus on Bolivia and making alliances and having a continental strategy to link up these different struggles. However, the United States had learned lessons from the Cuban Revolution and immediately set counterinsurgency forces and these things. And at the same time, within the Americas, there was in 1964 the military coup in Brazil, which was largely carried out, organized, backed by the CIA, because the Goulart regime, which was a progressive, not a revolutionary regime, but had friendly relations with Cuba and refused to break diplomatic relations with Cuba. So they were overthrown by the CIA, 64. So all these right wing military dictatorships began to build up their counterinsurgency forces. And then there was the betrayal and the defeat of Che and the murder of Che in 1967. And this was accompanied in the years before and in the years immediately afterward with basically the defeat and the crushing of guerrilla movements throughout this period in the 1960s, in Peru, in Argentina, which eventually led to the uh, military dictatorship there later. In Venezuela, attempts at armed struggle in Uruguay, the defeat of the Tupamaros, and in Brazil, as I said, there was a military coup, and then there were later struggles there. So, So this was a period when the revolutionary foreign policy of Cuba, where they were promoting revolutionary struggles against these regimes, led to a series of defeats and the murder of Che. And it was at this time that the Cuban leadership was also coming under tremendous economic pressure from the United States, was total diplomatic isolation in Latin America. After the coup in Brazil, the only government in all of the America, the Caribbean, Central America, Latin America, there was only one government that did not bow to the U.S. pressure to break diplomatic ties with Cuba, and that was Mexico. And part of that deal was that Mexico allowed because they felt politically, because of the traditions of the Mexican Revolution and so on, that they weren't able to do that politically, but they did allow the CIA to have a big base in Mexico, where they would allow that they would spy on the Cubans and so forth. So in that isolation, they had this big campaign, and and in this period of the 1960s, they clashed with the more pro-Moscow oriented communist parties of Latin America, which had. Sometimes very normal, and even friendly diplomatic relations with the same governments that were murdering the guerrillas and so on. And there's a number of books. I didn't bring this one. I had it here the last time. A book called Fidel Castro Speaks. It's out of print now. It was printed in the 60s by, I think, vintage And it has a number of the speeches by Fidel in that period where they really excoriate some of these other communist parties. And in Bolivia, the Bolivian Communist Party, which had quite a following in the working class among coal miners and other miners, had originally agreed to support and help lead at the equivalent of a revolutionary underground, which Che's strategy was always that any rural guerrilla campaign would have to have a component like the Cuban revolution did of an urban revolutionary underground would have to be underground because these were dictatorships where there was no legal political space to work. And if you read Che's classic guerrilla warfare book, one of the things he points out is that if there's any space for political activity, even under a corrupt regime, that even it holds phony elections. But if that means that there's any space that you could function, that means that the conditions for launching an armed struggle are not right. But in in many Latin American countries, (laughs) those were the conditions, and they had done that. So late 60s, the Cuban economy is under tremendous stress. Their guerrilla allies have been crushed. Che has been murdered. And in in 1968 was also a period when, in the Vietnam War, where the U.S. escalation, which this was a very dear question to the Cubans, had reached even 500,000 troops. So in this period, in order to maintain, to build the economy and so on under these conditions... The Cubans launched a campaign to harvest 10 million tons of sugar, which at that time was their major export and item that they could use to trade for manufactured products, industrial products, and so on. That campaign, although it produced 8.5 million tons, also failed. And this was another big blow. So a lot of these pressures led the Cubans to be in a position where they became again, more dependent on the Soviet Union and so on in terms of maneuvering. So at the same time, they're sort of pausing. They weren't prepared to go back to the guerrilla orientation, the armed struggle orientation that had developed in the 60s, but they still were looking for revolutionary opportunities. They were looking for openings where they could promote a revolutionary agenda. And what came along in 1973 was the tremendous upsurge in chile and this was uh an example of a government that got elected in 1970 uh, the allende government it was elected with about 37 percent of the vote in an election that was split between the Chilean Unidad Popular, which was basically an alliance of the two mass working-class parties that existed in Chile at that time, the Socialist Party, which Allende was the leader of, and the Communist Party, which was also a very mass working-class party. And then there was the bourgeois parties, the Christian Democrats, which were more liberal, and the more reactionary party. They were split. So you had a three-way race, and Allende got a plurality of the vote. And when he was elected, this led to a a massive upsurge and created political space for the working class and its allies in Chile. And the government became more and more popular and began to chip away more and more. By the time of the last congressional elections before the coup, they had gotten up to 44% of the vote in the Unidad Popular coalition. This government began to institute very important reforms. There was land reforms, nationalization of the copper industry, which is a very big foreign exchange earner in Chile, and so on. There's a tremendous story. I could give a whole lecture just on Chile, which was one of the biggest defeats for the working class movement since Hitler's smashing of the German workers' movement. This is a wonderful DVD called The Battle of Chile, which is Considered one of the great documentaries of all time, even by people that aren't that political. It's an amazing film, which you might be able to find on Amazon or Netflix or somewhere or, or even buy it if you had to in the old format of the DVDs. But it's it's worth seeing. It's a three part series it was actually filmed while the coup was taking place. The final finishes of it, the coup took place. There's an even a famous scene in there where one of the cameramen working for the director, who is a brilliant Chilean documentary filmmaker, uh, Guzman was filming during the day of the coup, and and the cameraman actually got shot and killed, and you can see him being killed with his camera by one of the military goons. The film was smuggled out of Chile after the coup and was finished in Cuba with the Cuban uh, film cooperative IKEC, which is a brilliant Cuban film cinema which is another I could talk about forever. But anyway, so the second disc in this is called the strike of the bourgeoisie, because what happened in Chile is the sort of the the bourgeois forces in Chile just withdrew and did everything they could to sabotage the economy. Some of you have probably read some of the accounts And now in the great American tradition after they overthrow some government or do some nasty, you know, they, they uh, released the, under the Freedom of Information Act, and you can actually see the documents of how they did it. They preserved it and all that, which they, which they certainly shows that the U.S. was involved in the coup on every level and in the sabotage. So now the important thing is that Fidel went to Chile. Chile established diplomatic relations with Cuba. They were the first, one of the first ones to break that diplomatic isolation. And Nixon and Kissinger hated. Chile for that, and were determined to overthrow the Allende government, if only for that reason. Now, Fidel went to Chile in 1971, 72, spent many months there. Unfortunately, and the, this film documents this, there were legions of workers who wanted arms. They could see the coup coming, and the Allende government took to constitutional legality, Unfortunately, the, uh, the Chilean military did not do that as well. And the coup took place, and really as many as 10,000 people were murdered in the days following the coup. Torture was rampant, and this was a huge defeat. And so I always say this is a negative example of Fidel's Marxist world outlook in the sense that as a Marxist, Fidel understood that this class polarization was not going to be able to be bridged and that a defeat on the scale of what happened would set back the workers' movement for a long period of time. This is really a law of the class struggle and of history. If you look back on history and you see major events, and this comes back in the next section we're discussing, which is Southern Africa, but this is a law. When Hitler defeated the German workers' movement and, and crushed you know, the remnants of bourgeois democracy in Germany, that was not <laughs> overturned. I mean, that was just a whole defeat, which lasts a whole epic. Franco in Spain, Suharto in Indonesia. Whenever the revolutionary movement or the workers' movement has a chance to take power and it doesn't do it and is defeated in that type of situation for whatever reason, you can't just instantly recover from that. It takes a whole epic, and you can have people that are keeping the revolutionary spirit alive, but that's not enough. So this is what happened in Chile. We'll see when we get to Southern Africa that the opposite happened, where the victory was able to prevent that kind of world defeat. So we go to Southern Africa. So the defeat in Chile is in September 11th, 1973. In 1974, an officer's coup takes place in Portugal, of low-level officers who are fed up with the colonial wars that Portugal has been carrying out for almost centuries in Southern Africa, in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. And these regimes are decrepit because this is an empire that began. it's like a semi-feudal empire, and it's just too much for the weak capitalist state, one of the weakest capitalist states in Europe, Portugal, to have such an empire. And it began to hollow out and decay from within. And so these junior officers overthrew the Salazar regime, which was a semi-fascist regime that had been allied to Franco and Hitler and and had been kept in power by imperialism. But they overthrew it. And these officers were very progressive-minded, and tremendous political space opened up in Portugal. And the very first thing that was done was to say, we're getting the hell out of Africa and the pressure to dissolve these colonial structures and to win independence. And there were already liberation movements, Frelimo in in southern Africa and in Angola, the MPLA, and other groups that had been fighting for independence. And these groups got tremendous impetus. The strongest, most multinational was a group called the MPLA. And the Portuguese said, we're giving independence, I think, November 11th, 1976, this is Independence Day. South Africa, still ruled by the apartheid state, covertly backed by the by the United States, but not able to be too open because of political factors in the United States. But nevertheless, so they decide this is not acceptable. There's no way that we can have an independent government on our border that is allied to Cuba, that is not a U.S.- allied regime that's part of the non-aligned movement that also has friendly relations with the soviet union so they began to organize an invasion force and they were going to overthrow that government and they said troops going and they had of course the most mechanized the most powerful military in the entire african continent was the apartheid regime's military and they were on the gates of luanda at the time of the day that independence was going to be declared And the Angolan government, which, of course, was guerrilla forces that had fought guerrilla warfare, they had not built up a modern army. They were really in no position to resist this invasion. That wasn't just theoretical. The troops were were moving and on the border and ready to cross over. So they appealed to the Soviet Union for help. Soviet Union said, no, we're not interested in doing anything before independence is declared. There's a wonderful uh, documentary film called Cuba and Africa. It's a French production, I think. Excellent film. You can find that, I know, is on Netflix or uh, Amazon. And the Cuban representative, a wonderful revolutionary fighter, said, we are ready. The Soviets may not be ready, but we are ready. And the Cubans sent, this is one of the most amazing acts of selfless internationalism in the history of the workers' movement and uh, the internationalist movement. They sent thousands by ship, by plane, by transport of troops right to the gates of Luanda to meet the South African forces and to push them back, which they did. This was unprecedented. The whole account, the best account is, uh, you can look it up on the Internet, by the Nobel Prize-winning author Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who was also a great journalist. He wrote an account called Operation Carlotta. It was originally published, I think in all places, Rolling Stone magazine back in 1970, uh, whatever it was, 76, 77, But you can find it on the Internet everywhere. It's a fantastic essay on how they did this. Carlotta was a slave, a woman, who led a slave uprising in Matanzas, Cuba, in the 1830s. That was a mass uprising of slaves organized by Carlotta, who was captured and murdered, but who's an inspiring figure. Anyway, the operation was named after her. In the course of the next 12 years... Until the defeat of the South Africans at the Battle of Quito Cunavale, the Cubans had 370,000 troops, not all at once, but served, volunteers served in this. That includes 370,000 troops and 50,000 doctors and civilians. Over 2,000 Cuban troops died because for many years after they were pushed back from Luanda, there was a wars that were going on, incursions, battles. And this is intricately and intimately tied to the growing mass struggle in South Africa. In 1976 is the youth uprising at Soweto. 600, 700 people murdered in the streets, but leading to a mass explosion and the growth of the ANC, the revolutionary movement in South Africa, and South Africa becoming more or less ungovernable. And at the same time, the South African army is stretched out fighting the Cubans here and there over many years. This culminates in the late 1980s in the decisive battles where the Cubans defeated and their Angolan and uh, Namibian and South African allies defeated in battle the white South African army. And this was uh, mostly all African army that did this. So the psychological Impact of this. For the first time, it showed that the apartheid army, which also had a lot of drafted African troops, but totally led and officered by uh, white South Africans, could be defeated. And this was extremely important, so you can see what Mandela said that many times that this was the decisive factor in the defeat. And again, this was done for nothing. The Cubans say this was we, we left with nothing but the bodies of our fallen comrades no gold no silver no deals and angola uh, you know is a oil rich country so but none, nothing like that so this was an example of what i was talking about before we look at chile as an example of fidel's foresight this at this moment if you can think this was the fact the defeat of south africa which led by 1988 and then the early 90s to the unraveling of the apartheid regime because they were forced to grant independence to Namibia. They were forced eventually to release Mandela, to unban the ANC, to negotiate the end of apartheid, in a sense. I mean, their concessions were made on the other side. That's a, that's a whole question. But the future of the African continent, if you look at the African continent today, what it's relative Growth in political unity, relative development, relative space, the rise of Africa in the, its weight in the world. This is all flows from this period where the main bulwark of imperialism in South Africa, which was the apartheid state, was defeated. That was a huge advance for working people in South Africa and throughout the entire African continent. But Fidel had the foresight to see that if this had not happened, if the Portuguese had been able to win. If the U.S. backed uh, South African forces in Angola, Namibia, I I don't think I'm giving the full impact of what this meant, this war in Southern Africa. Because in Southern Africa, at that time, Reagan, who was the president, unleashed the uh, RENAMO group in Mozambique that maybe killed conservatively 500,000, a million people, laid waste to the country. In Angola, they supported the Savimbi and Holden Roberto, who were like, it was a total creation of the CIA. Savimbi was allied with South Africa. It was devastating. At the same time, they were doing the Contra War in Nicaragua, it was a very devastating impact in Southern Africa. But they were defeated. And Fidel knew that if that had did not happened, it would have set in a whole epic. Can you imagine the African continent, the map of Africa politically today, if that had not happened? Now, uh, go back for a second. I forgot to mention when we're talking about what did happen in Chile. That ushered in further the period that was called the Condor Years. That was an alliance of all of these right-wing military dictatorships in Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, where they set up an operation called Operation Condor, where they assassinated opponents of the regime, unleashed death squads, The diplomat Orlando Letelier, people may remember his case in Washington, D.C., murdered on the streets of Washington, D.C., had been a Chilean diplomat in Washington that was supported Allende. So this was a very dark period in Latin American history that began to unravel around the same time as the uh, defeats in Southern Africa. So around this period, there also, we talk about Chile, but in the South American continent, it was a series of defeats, which I just mentioned. But at the same time, in Central America, there'd be a the big revolutionary upsurge. And this went on, and this is a collection of Fidel's speeches from this period, War and Crisis of the Americas, which I would really strongly recommend. That was a very rich period. It was highlighted by the victorious Sandinista Revolution in 1979. That, in turn led to the um, establishment, if people remember from the last class, we went into the question from a theoretical perspective of the idea of a workers' and farmers' government. You remember we talked about in Cuba, unlike, say, some of the processes we've seen recently in in Latin America where progressive governments get elected, in Cuba there was a revolutionary war which the old institutions of the old neocolonial state dissolved in the course of the revolutionary struggle. The police, the courts, the army, and the whole apparatus of repression that makes up a state. So in Nicaragua it was a similar process because it was an armed struggle, the Somosa dictatorship was overthrown through an armed struggle, and the revolutionaries in power dissolved the old police, the old army, the old court system, and began to build up institutions that were in the interests of the workers and peasants. And this is what happened for many years. And the reforms, the same campaigns around illiteracy, the expansion of culture, the expansion of health care, with the help of Cuba, which helped with doctors, but the cause for people that, uh, I see a few folks that are maybe not as old as me, but probably went through that period, you know, that, that it was a very inspiring. It's like Venezuela was in our lifetimes or, or things like that. So it's a very inspiring thing. Youth would go down to Nicaragua to help But, of course, it led to the U.S.-Contra War, and this was devastating to Nicaragua. Although they defeated the Contras militarily, the country was so exhausted by the war that it created tremendous pressure on the Sandinista government, and there were debates. Could they go further? How would they deal with questions of land reform? What would they do with all these returning soldiers that came back after the war, how would they do land? And there was an, a lot of indecision and erosion of support because of the conditions of the war and so on. And, that, and it eventually led to the defeat of the Sandinistas in elections. But a lot of the revolutionary fervor of the early years had eroded by that time and so on. That's a very important question in terms of Nicaragua. But I'm going to move on because we've got a lot to cover to Grenada. There was another great revolution in the Caribbean in a black, English-speaking country that had a huge impact. Maurice Bishop took power in a revolutionary uh, movement against the Gary dictatorship. Again, another workers and farmers government began to establish tremendous reforms in the interests of working people in Grenada and had a big impact throughout the Caribbean. And this time, the revolutionary process was destroyed from within there was a coup led by a faction by a man named bernard cord that actually in their own bubble a sectarian existence that they had and factional just actually murdered maurice bishop and some of the leaders of the uh, grenada revolution and this was a huge huge defeat so this revolutionary upsurge there had been guerrilla struggles in el salvador that led to a non-conclusive conclusion the armed struggle didn't win the government didn't win they there was pressure to carry out peace talks. So, so basically, the revolutionary upsurge in that period was either defeated or neutralized in that period. And, and the Cubans had gone from great revolutionary prospects to, again, seeing a series of defeats. This laid the basis for, because a few years later, the Soviet Union collapsed. There was all the cold war propaganda that the u.s had won the cold war and the end of socialism the end of history whatever and in this period led to the long sort of neoliberal decade or less in latin america that sort of was ushered in by the victory of the military uh, dictatorship in chile and the pinochet brought in the university of chicago economists the chicago boys i think they called them and Of course, it's easier to do when you have a full dictatorship. You can sort of just impose these neoliberal austerity measures. Okay, so next thing we're going to talk about is the question of Stalin and Stalinism. This has been, as people know, an arsenal in the propaganda against socialism, Marxism, and communism by propagandists for imperialism and for capitalism is the crimes that did take place in the Soviet Union and the policies there and to try to identify that with what happened with anybody that tries to present a socialist program or even a social democratic program or whatever. So in this period, as we discussed in the last classes, Cuba was allied with the Soviet Union and was dependent in some ways, although they struggled to maintain their political independence. So they sort of had to be necessarily circumspect on a lot of things that they couldn't really... Sometimes say everything that they thought or felt about the policies, for example, on the Vietnam War in particular was something that the Cubans were very upset that the Soviet Union and China were fighting each other and doling out aid to Vietnam and so on. Now, when the Soviet Union collapsed, which the Fidel and the Cubans saw coming, this had a terrible impact on the Cuban economy. The Cuban economy by that time was carrying out almost 85% of their trade with the Soviet Union and, and allied Eastern European countries. And so when when the Soviet Union collapsed and the so-called socialist camp and all the Eastern European countries that Cuba had carried out relations with, this not only, it was a devastating blow economically, but in a strange irony of history kind of way, but it was a very liberating politically for them, in the sense that they could now talk more openly about the contrast between their practice and that of the Soviet Union and talk more openly about some of the problems that they had, and including in terms of economic relations. And they began to talk out more clearly. And and the things that I'm going to cite in the next few slides are examples of Fidel. In fact, in one in this interview With Tomas Borges, who was a leader of the Sandinistas, he goes into detail on his thoughts about Stalin and Stalinism, going back to the time of the Soviet Union, the consolidation of power by Stalin, and many things like that, where he, he talked more openly about that he had done. So among the things that he talks about was the fact that in the Cuban Revolution, the question of socialist legality was very important and that he has strong criticisms that he talks about the purges and the murder of many communists, the disregard of socialist legality. This man here is a guy named Tukhachevsky. He was the head of the Red Army, he was a brilliant military leader. He had been elevated in the army at the time when, when Trotsky was the head of the army, who was, of course, an anathema by then. But he was one of the brilliant innovators in terms of military theory, He understood that the next wars would be mobile wars, things like this. The Nazis, Hitler, had a disinformation campaign (laughs) where they sent out false documents and stuff. And knowing how paranoid Stalin was, uh, they arrested him and framed him up for being a German agent. And uh, that led to a tremendous purge of the Red Army in the mid 1930s were literally thousands. They say something like maybe 70, 80% of the officers and the higher commands were not just demoted, but were actually executed, including Tukhachevsky. This is a chart that shows the central committee of the Bolshevik party at the time of the revolution, and that by the late 1930s after the purges, every single one of them had been executed or in the case of Trotsky, he was assassinated in 1940. He had gotten out of the country before the purges started. So Fidel stressed in these interviews and so on the question of socialist legality, that there was never anybody tortured, executed. There were executions, but there was trials and these things of counter-revolutionaries, not frame-ups. And he had strong opinions on this and wrote about it and, and in these interviews. The forced collectivization of agriculture is another distinction between the practice in the Soviet Union and in uh, Cuba. So I want to read a couple of quotes from Fidel. He says, first on the question of legality on Stalin. He says, I was more critical of Stalin because of some of his mistakes. He was to blame, in my view, for the invasion of the USSR in 1941 by Hitler's powerful war machine without the Soviet army ever hearing a call to arms. Stalin also committed serious errors, everyone knows, about his abuse of force, the repression, and his personal characteristics, the cult of personality. He says, his terrible distrust of everything made him commit several other mistakes. One of them was falling in the trap of German intrigue and conducting a terrible, bloody purge of the armed forces and practically beheading the Soviet Union on the eve of the war. Then on forced collectivization, he said... Some of Stalin's worst mistakes were in agricultural policy and forced collectivization of farms, which never happened in Cuba. It seems to me that the process of socialization of the land should have been started earlier and developed progressively. It seems to me that the attempt to socialize the land in an extremely short period of time historically by means of violence was very costly both economically and in terms of human suffering. That was a serious mistake under Stalin's Leadership. What I don't believe is that anything forced them to have, then, carried out an accelerated process of compulsory collectivization. We've always understood that small plots of land have limited production possibilities, but we never engaged in any compulsory collectivization. And to this day, there are hundreds of thousands of private farmers in Cuba. Another one is the question of art and culture. I raise these things because these are all part of the theme of what we're talking about today, which is resolving the question of revolutionary leadership in the world. Because all of us, may I see a number of young people here, people that are veterans of struggles. Most of us here, I think, are engaged in struggles, labor struggles, struggles for whatever, against police killings, all the struggles in this beehive of activity here in the People's Forum. And the struggles that we're involved in, the question comes up, in all of these things is the question of revolutionary leadership, because mass uprising, you look at Latin America, look at the world today, you pick up a newspaper, everywhere you look, there's uprisings in Lebanon, in Chile, in Ecuador, mass struggles, and the question is, if it's like steam that can be dissipated, or if you can forge out of that, like Fidel did in the Cuban Revolution, a selfless cadre of leaders that can link to the mass struggles and lead to a a victory as the other side begins to organize its forces. So this is a very important distinction also. Even though the early years of the Russian Revolution saw, like every genuine revolution, an incredible flourishing of art, culture, new art forms, the Cubists. If you look at some of the early Soviet art and the poster art and the film art, which a lot of it's been ripped off by Madison Avenue, some of those same designs and stuff, because they were so brilliant artistically. But by the mid-1930s, there was an official art in the Soviet Union. The Matisses and all those great paintings were stored away in the storerooms of the Hermitage. They weren't really shown much Hermitage in Leningrad. And, you know, it was really big. If you could draw great landscapes showing... Peasants leaving the thing and all that. You know, they came up with some brilliant stuff, but it was like socialist realism. This became like an imposed art form and literature and novels if they strayed into too surreal stuff. So this was the complete opposite of the Cuban Revolution. Now, the Cuban Revolution was under siege from the United States, and a lot of times the United States would try to find some artist or claim somebody an artist and say they're being censored. But in the Cuban Revolution, the slogan that encapsulated the position on art and culture was this is from fidel within the revolution everything outside and against the revolution nothing in other words nobody cared and if you look at cuban art and this has always been the case in terms of forms and i gave a couple examples uh, art forms styles all of that you didn't have to be political or whatever you know as long as if it wasn't something that was used to attack the revolution and you you put yourself in the service of the U.S. in the context of a war against Cuba, then you couldn't expect that the revolution was going to give you a platform to do that. But there was no censorship in style and art. There was a period in the 1970s when there was conflict between some bureaucrats in Cuba, and there was some, but that was overcome within a few years. So this is the uh, Hitler-Stalin pact, which Fidel considered to be a huge mistake, and he said, I'm going to read you a little quote on this, because this becomes very important in Cuban politics in this period. So his views were particularly sharp on this question. He said, I was 13 when World War II began, and I read all the newspapers. I had been avidly reading all the newspapers, all the international news, ever since the Spanish... Civil War. I read the newspapers in the years preceding war. Stalin did something that I will always criticize because I think it was a flagrant violation of principle. His seeking peace with Hitler at all costs to gain time in our long revolutionary life. And in the already relatively long life of the Cuban Revolution, we have never negotiated even one principle to gain time or obtain any other kind of practical advantage all my life. Ever since I developed a political and revolutionary awareness, I have considered that pact to have been a terrible mistake in Soviet foreign policy. It was a mistake in terms of principles and international opinion. And then he goes on to say, the things I mentioned go contrary to the doctrine and political wisdom. Even though it is true that the Soviet Union had a year and nine months between September 39 and June 1941 in which to rearm, the one who made him, so there's a period of the Stalin-Hitler pact, 39 to 41, June 22nd, 1941, Hitler invades the Soviet Union, breaks the pact. He said if Hitler had gone to war against the Soviet Union in 1939, he would have done less damage than in June 1941. He made another extremely serious mistake in June 1941, with the Stalin he's talking about, when the Germans had concentrated millions of soldiers... Thousands of planes, tens of thousands of tanks and armored vehicles, and hundreds of divisions along the border. Faced with such clearly aggressive intentions, it was impossible to disguise them. Stalin clung to the theory that it was an act of provocation, and acted like an ostrich sticking his head in the sand. He didn't mobilize the troops. So what happens? Hitler launched a surprise attack on the Soviet Union. How do you launch a surprise attack with millions of soldiers? Well, it was done, and Hitler attacked a country that wasn't mobilized and the result was 25 million dead in the Soviet Union before they finally defeated. The Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. Again, this was the period, as I mentioned earlier, when Cuba was under tremendous pressure. And in this period, at the same time that the United States was escalating the Vietnam War, a government had come to power in Czechoslovakia, a government of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, a reform wing that began to carry out certain reforms in terms of democratic rights, space, cultural reforms and so on within the system, but it was carrying out a dynamic, it inspired people, and at the same time it was uh, championed by the West and by the United States trying to intervene in that and to try to take political advantage of it, which created a confusing situation. So that when the Soviets invaded and put in a government that was more amenable to it, this resulted in some resistance, which was eventually crushed. And there was a lot of pressure on Cuba. Most of the communist parties of Europe denounced it. This was denounced by most left-wing intellectuals around the world. And everybody was waiting. What is Fidel going to say? Because the Cuban revolution had had an attraction. And so Fidel, under all this pressure because of the uh, conditions that I mentioned earlier, the economic conditions, the defeat of all the guerrillas, the more dependence on the Soviet Union. Fidel came out with a statement, a, a speech, that you can look up on the uh, University of Texas archive that I referred to. And the bottom line was he endorsed reluctantly the Soviet invasion. But it was such a critical... it was He blasted Soviet policy so much that the Soviets never even printed the support, but nevertheless, that was a position, and he goes back to this question in the book, My Life, which I've referred to as his sort of interview autobiography. So this, again, became an important marker. So in 1991, Eastern Europe, most of the governments there had fallen. The Soviet Union was about to collapse, and in this period, the first democratically elected government in Brazil took power And it was led by a right-wing, multimillionaire scion of a very rich family, sort of like the Fox News of Brazil, that family. But nevertheless, it was the first democratically, more or less, elected government. A lot of people claim that he stole it from Lula even back then. But nevertheless, and, and they had an inauguration, and it was a big deal. So Fidel went to the inauguration as part of the diplomatic offensive in Cuba to break out of their isolation. And by this time, they had almost completely broken out of it and had diplomatic relations. So when Fidel went to Brazil, it was at this period when the Soviet Union was collapsing and so on. And Brazil, he had all these amazing meetings there with liberation theology groups, with teachers, with trade unionists and so on. And he spoke again, probably more closely on what was going on in the Soviet Union and the alternative that the Cuban revolution represented. And so I want to give a few quotes there. This is from a meeting he had with a Christian-based community in 1990 with liberation theologians. He says, somebody asked him about the Gorbachev's policy of perestroika, and didn't they need to do something like that in Cuba, have an opening a democratic process? And Fidel said, we had already begun our process of rectification of errors and negative tendencies. Naturally, our process couldn't be the same as that of the USSR, because we didn't make the same mistakes they made. We made other mistakes of a different kind, and we had to rectify them, because doing the things they did over there would have been like removing a corn with a remedy prescribed for a toothache. We didn't have phenomena like those stemming from Stalinism in our country. That never occurred, and neither did abuse of authority for at certain historical moments, highly negative, violent processes against peoples took place in the Soviet Union. We've never used violence against even a single one of our citizens. We'd never stoop to doing that because the day we did such a thing, using torture, committing crimes, we'd be outraged ourselves. There's never been a case of political crime in our country. We had revolutionary laws, revolutionary courts, revolutionary trials, and even spies, Terrorists who were executed with due process, but we never laid a finger on anybody to make him speak or tell anything. That hasn't stopped people from spreading the most atrocious and infamous lies about our country. But obviously, great abuse of authority took place at certain times in the USSR, and there were phenomena which did not exist in Cuba. So there were many other things in there. And in my uh, essay here, which people can get, is more, more quotes from that. In 2005, Fidel gave this speech at the University of Havana, which is a long speech, and it's considered in Cuba one of his main legacy speeches. And, and I want to quote about the period that we talked about a little bit, about the impact on Cuba. And this is an example of he's talking about resolving the crisis of revolutionary leadership. He says, we were speaking of the importance of the ethical factor we would have to research the reasons for the confusion. I believe that historical events influenced the idea that for a communist, the end justifies the means. There were international events that were difficult to understand. There was a precedent of France and Britain, those two great colonial powers, and the greatest in the world, attempting to hurl Hitler against the USSR. I think that the plans to throw Hitler against the USSR would have never justified the pact, made between Hitler and Stalin was a very hard blow. The communist parties, well known for their discipline, were obliged to defend the pact, and it cost them tremendous support around the world because that was discredited. Now he talks about Cuba. Before the pact, the necessity for unification in the anti-fascist struggle led to the alliance in Cuba of the Cuban communists with Batista. By then, Batista had suppressed the famous strike of April 1932 that followed his coup against the provisional government. And then in 1944, the Cuban Communist Party, the, we named the Popular Socialist Party, actually joined the Batista government. And that discredited them. And that vacuum is what led to the revolutionary youth that bypassed the CP and developed into the July 26th movement. So there was always, even though they merged later with the remnants of the CP, and the CP had joined in the guerrilla struggle in 1958, there was always that Fidelista core tracing back to those periods. Okay, so the last thing I want to go into is the last period of Fidel's active political life until his death in 2016, the last revolutionary triumphs. The Cubans like to say that they, when Fidel died, The slogan developed that Fidel was the undefeated because since Moncada, at least, he won almost every struggle that he directly was involved in. So I want to go a couple of these. The special period, I think I've gone into, these are some of the charts here about tremendous difficulties, the collapse of the economy, 35 percent decline. By comparison, the U.S. economy during the Great Depression, I think declined 20 percent or something like that blackouts all the time, surgery done in the daylight because electricity would go out, so they'd have to do major surgeries like that. These are oxen that were replacing tractors that, you know, they had no parts for. This had a good side to it in a sense. Some people argue anyway that it forced the Cubans to become more organic. Like a lot of, lot of things, the dialectic of history. I spoke to Cubans that told me that during this special period, The caloric intake went down. Nobody starved or anything like that. But as a result, a lot of people lost a lot of weight. They walked more. Bicycles became very big. And all of a sudden, the diabetes (laughs) went way down. And then when they started to come out of it, And uh, they started getting those more processed foods from the United States that they had to pay cash for, that some of these things went up again. So, you know, there's always that irony. And at that time, this was a huge challenge. This was a country that throughout the 1970s and 80s had this structural relationship with the Soviet Union that was very beneficial. They had fixed prices for their goods. They could send sugar to get manufactured products in return. It may not have been the best quality, and so on and so forth, but things functioned. Standard of living went up. They were able to finance the social conquest, health, education, and so on. So when that happened, that had a devastating effect. But they rebuilt the tourist industry, squads of construction workers, volunteer workers. They would build up these hotels. They realized that the one thing that they could do to get foreign exchange to keep the social programs going was to bring in foreign exchange from tourism so overnight brigades of construction workers would build these nice hotels and they could start recruiting they would have teams of revolutionary cadre going out trying to find somebody that had capital a business or an investor or an individual capitalist or a state entity or something that could invest in cuba that could begin to rebuild distribution networks all these things that had collapsed in this period in the middle of while they're leading this fight to get out of the special period, to put that behind them, the case of Elian Gonzalez electrifies the country and becomes a unification because here's a man whose child was taken from him, so who's uh, liberated and discovered and given to these counter-revolutionary, anti-revolutionary families. There's this spectacle every day. The Castro regime and this child... Escaping from communism, and the father just wouldn't go along with this scenario. He says, I want my child back, and I'm not defecting. And they tried everything. They tried to throw everything, and and he wouldn't do it. And he was a modest worker in the tourism industry. And uh, this is a case that riveted US politics for quite a while, if people remember. And eventually, he was returned to his father, and this was a huge victory. And this was something that regalvanized. Popular struggles inside of Cuba. But this was a victory. The fight against the FTAA, Free Trade of the Americas Act. After NAFTA was passed, if people recall, the Bush administration and then the Clinton administration wanted to extend this to all of Latin America to have this neoliberal regime that would devastate. Further, working people, you know, do what NAFTA did to Mexican farmers and workers and the maquiladoras and everything. And this was their grand plan, and they had momentum for it. They had elected a neoliberal government in Argentina, Menem. There was a wave of these conservative governments. As I said, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the defeats of the Central American revolutions, that led to all kinds of intellectuals, economists, political figures that had previously identified themselves as left-wing moving to the right. Intellectuals like the guy that won the Nobel Prize for Literature, Vargas Llosa, Teodoro Petkov, a prominent intellectual in, in Venezuela moved to the right, Jorge Castaneda, who I think he teaches at NYU now, he's become a very right wing. He used to be the Mexican foreign minister under Fox. So they had momentum for this. Cuba led the fight against this. I remember the first time I started going back to Cuba after 1980, would go to these conferences. And this is the middle of the special period, when they're on their backs. They would organize these conferences, bringing together trade unionists and others across the Americas to fight and eventually to defeat, to create the conditions that defeated the FTA and had to, that had to be withdrawn. The last, perhaps biggest victory of Fidel was the victory to free the Cuban Five. We just had a event right here at the People's Forum to celebrate the fifth anniversary of the freeing. These were five revolutionaries. They were intelligence operatives that had been assigned to monitor the terrorist activity of these right-wing groups because as Cuba was getting out of special period, building these hotels, building up the tourism industry, the right-wing forces in Cuba targeted that industry. This is when they passed Helmsburden. They set off bombs in hotels, an Italian tourist was murdered there was sabotage, there was flights dropping, all these things trying to lay the conditions to take advantage they were clinking the champagne glasses when the special period broke out literally in Miami, this right wing Miami Herald columnist a guy named Andres Oppenheimer but he, he published a book it was called After Castro or, or like, but he wrote a book that basically said he's going, next year he's coming down now, and they literally had champagne on ice, and in the course of this the Cubans kept Sending complaints formally to the FBI, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who I referred to earlier, who happened to have been a friend of both Fidel, a good friend of Fidel, and a friend of Bill Clinton, who admired his novels and invited him to be a guest at the White House. And he brought with him a message from Fidel to Clinton saying these things are happening. These terrorist groups are doing it. We know this. And can you do something about that? They're breaking U.S. law, among other things, which is that, you know, you're not supposed to try to overthrow a foreign government. They were basically supported or winked at by the FBI and and the Aviation Administration and all of these things. And the U.S. refused to do anything about it. And, in fact, they sort of used the uh, initial contacts to try to figure out and step up there trying to figure out who, who the Cuban Five were. So, well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. So what they did was they went in there to actually monitor, not to do anything, but just to monitor the activities of these groups. And they managed to prevent quite a few terrorist attacks. But eventually, and it's a story you can look up, it's a very inspiring story, the case of the Cuban Five. Eventually, they were arrested. There was a big international campaign. We were very involved in New York and in the United States. Eventually, free them after 16 years Three of them were freed, and then when Obama decided to uh, retreat on U.S. policy and to restore diplomatic relations with Cuba, this was sort of a precondition from on, on the Cuban side about this, and they were finally freed as a condition for the establishment of diplomatic relations. This was one of Fidel's final victories. Thank you.